0: It was 23 years ago, this exact month, that I first walked into a worship service at Church of the Resurrection. It was over in West Chicago High School back then, and there were maybe 80 or 90 people gathered. I was on my own because my wife, Karen, had sworn off church. Now she's the executive pastor here, so sometimes I like to ask her, so how's that commitment working out for you? But, I, you know, it was like it usually is when you're first time in a new church, and some of you, maybe you're here for the first time today so you understand this, it, you're not really entering into worship fully because you're kind of taking it all in and trying to decide, well, who's that person over there and why is this happening the way it's happening? And so I was in that framework, uh, frame mind uh, and halfway through the service, I all of a sudden started to cry. And I was like, what? what is going on with me? Like, why am I crying? There hadn't been some sort of sad song. There hadn't been some sort of tear-jerking illustration in the sermon. And yet there I was just crying. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, you all go on with your liturgy thing here because I don't know what's going on with me. And finally I realized it's the presence of the Lord. I was overwhelmed by the presence of of God." And I began to cry. Well, I was thinking about that experience because last month we had our lunch with the staff, which is something we have every month here, roughly, uh, for new people who have come to Res to sit down across the table and get to know them, and they get to know our staff and our leaders and our vision and ministries. And so I said to the person who was across from me at the table, I said, now, what was it that led you to want to connect in here at Resurrection? And she said, well, it's kind of strange. She said, I I was visiting your church and I was sitting there in the service and about halfway through the service, I began to cry. You probably think that's weird. Or not. (laughs) What is it about real worship that is so compelling? What is it when you encounter the living God that you say, I got to go back next week? I don't even know what that is. I can't explain it, but I've got to be there in the presence of the Holy God. And that's why she had that same experience 23 years later. Friends, this matters so much that we accept no substitutes for real worship. Because there are so many imitators, so many things that are pretend worship, and yes, even false worship. They look like worship. But they're not. Just for one innocuous example, uh, friends of ours, their son was getting married, and so they invited us, and it was at a, uh, a country club up on the North Shore. And so the uh, wedding was under a white tent that had been put up in the parking lot of this golf course. And so we were sitting there, and I, I didn't know the minister, and I didn't really know the service, and I was a little disoriented by that. And then, frankly, I was just distracted by all the golf carts zipping by during the service. So it looked like I was in a worship service. It looked like I should have been worshiping. I was not worshiping. Happy to be there for my friends. No worship going up from me. Now you're here in a worship service this morning, but are you here to really worship? What I want to do this morning from the Bible is I want to look at a, one of the best pictures in the entire Bible of what true worship, real worship looks like. And I want to just hold that up so that we all get very clear on that. And then right next to it, I want to set another picture of what false worship looks like. What it, 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 on the outside, it would appear to be worship, but it's not. And I want us to get very clear. This is true worship. This is is false. And I want us to compare them and kind of go, what is not like the other until we're all clear on what the difference is. And I think you'll see as we work our way through this Bible passage that it all comes down to one thing. There is one difference. If you have that, you have true worship. And if you don't have that, you don't. It's that simple. It is that clear And it's that challenging for every one of us. Let's look at it together. If you would turn to the gospel reading in Matthew 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, meaning the land of the Jews, during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. These are people who are on a quest to worship. The reason we came all this way, they said, the reason we did all this is we've come to worship. That's what we want. And this is the first picture. Now, who are these people, the wise men? Well, this is at a time when astronomy and astrology have not yet gone their separate ways. So in one way, they're like our astronomers from today, kind of our PhD research scientists who are in a government-funded think tank there in the Persian Empire. But in another way, they're just pagan astrologers, very far from the God of the Jews. They're doing something expressly forbidden in the Bible. And so they have both things going on. And so these are the classic outsiders. But they're very smart. And so what they, they they know this, they know, hey, there are those ancient prophecies that say a star will arise over Judah and a scepter over the land of the Jews. So they know that there's going to be a king who's born, who has unprecedented and magnificent power in the land of the Jews. That will be coming. And so when they see this unusual star rising in the night sky over the land of the Jews, they put two and two together. Now, that star may have been a conjunction of planets, a supernova. We're not totally sure, but it was an unusual planetary uh, occurrence, and they realized a king has been born. That's the sign that this is occurring. We're going to go. And so they tra- start traveling 1,000 miles on camel. Now, if you said to me, hey, Kev, why don't, why don't you and I do a, like a bike trip to Houston? I'd be like... Well, okay, but that's going to take some time and planning. We're going to have to like, get like, really good equipment, and we're going to have to like, have a ton of spare parts, and we're going to have to map it all out, and it's going to be very expensive, so we're going to need to get sponsors who will sponsor us for this 1,000-mile odyssey to Houston, and then once we get to Houston, well, we got to bike back. Oh, that's another 1,000 miles. So this journey that these these wise men have undertaken, it's time, it's money, it's risk, it's uncertainty, and the reason they're doing it is we've come to worship. They're on a worship quest. That's picture one. Now, let's look at picture two, verse three. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now you think, well, why would that be? Like, this year, when baby George was born, it was like the entire UK shut down for a week. There were parties and celebrations and flowers laid at you know, the gate at Buckingham Palace and all this kind of stuff. The whole nation was deliriously happy. And so here in the land of the Jews, the king of the Jews has just been born and everybody's totally disturbed, deeply disturbed. Why would that be? Well, Herod was one of those names that when you heard it, you would shudder. If you've been following North Korea, it would be like saying the name Kim Jong un. He's a brutal dictator. He has the gall to call himself the King of the Jews, but he's really only half Jewish. And he's been sponsoring pagan temples. Worse than that, he is a collaborator with the oppressive pagan military might of Rome, subjugating the Jews and getting money and power for doing that. King of the Jews. And he's a brutal dictator. If anyone starts to rise up and get the slightest bit of power, he takes them out. He murders his wife. He murders his mother-in-law. He murders two of his sons. And then there was that popular young priest who suddenly had a drowning accident. Yeah, the water was only a couple feet deep, but these things happen. Here's how Herod thinks. He realizes when I die, no one's going to mourn me. So he gives the order, when I die, go into Jerusalem and kill some nobles so there will be tears in the city on the day I die. And so he thinks to himself, oh, my word. There was no star that rose in the heavens when I came to power. I have a very sketchy claim to this throne, and I'll be darned if I'm getting off of it, though. And so if there's a real king signified by this star, that person is not going to get one bit of my control. And even if it's not the real thing, if if the religious loonies get going and think it's the real thing, there could be a revolt, and I'm not budging off this throne. I will maintain control. And why is everybody else feeling the same way? Because they're all on Herod's payroll, or they're all afraid, if I go and worship this new king, I'm a dead man. So let's see what happens. Turn to verse 7, if you would. Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. He learned when the star first appeared. And then he told them, listen to this, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go and worship him too. In verse 2, the wise men came and said, we've come to worship. And now in verse 8, Herod's saying the same thing. I can't wait to worship. That'd be so awesome. I'd love to worship. What's the difference? They have the same information, The wise men and Herod both know that a king's been born, they know about when, and they know where. The difference is not the information, it's the motivation. The wise men are so motivated to worship, they will travel 1,045 miles to make this thing happen. And Herod, who's four miles away, won't get up off his throne and take a step. Let's look at verse 9. The wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. Now, Jesus looks like any other toddler boy in in the neighborhood. He's probably squirming on his mother's lap when they come in. And when they see him, knowing that he's been attested by a star, And by the words of the scriptures, they bowed down. Now, this is the Middle East, friends. This isn't a little like nod of the head out of reverence or deference. This is, I'm on my knees with my face planted in the dirt in obeisance to a deity, a king, a God, a personage so much greater than myself that all I can do is fall down and bow down before him. That's the only appropriate response. And they pull out their treasures, and they're like, this is the best stuff we've got, and we poured our heart and soul into this money that we're going to give you gold for the king of kings, and frankincense for the priest of priests, and myrrh, that burial ointment for the dead, for the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, and they worship. Is there a better picture of worship than what's going on right here? And it's in this moment that we suddenly get, what does it take to really worship? It takes sacrifice. There is no worship without sacrifice. Worship that costs us nothing is worth nothing. These guys have given up time. They've given up months on this trip. They've given up money, all the travel expenses, all the uh, the money for these lavish gifts. They've given up their control and just fallen with their faces in the dirt because they want to worship. And they're going to go home bone-tired and poorer than they started out, but filled with joy because they saw the king they wanted to worship, and they finally were able to worship him. And when you see the king, when you get in the presence of God, you forget about the cost. Now, how's that compare with Herod? Verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Herod thinks, I killed two of my own sons. It's no difficulty for me to kill yours. What is the difference? This is a surprise, isn't it? That the pagan astrology-dabbling foreigners from way outside the people of God get it. And the insiders who are living in the capital city totally miss it. And here's the difference, is that Herod's like, I'm king. I'm sitting on the throne. I won't budge an inch. I will not give up any of my power or control. And the wise men realize worship can't even start until we do that. We're going to have to give up our time. We're going to have to give up our money. And above all, the biggest sacrifice it takes is control. We have to lay with our faces in the dirt and say, you are king, not me. I was uh, recently given an, uh, an article from Harvard Business Review by one of our members. It's very interesting. This professor studied why is it that the smartest business school graduates in the country from our top business schools, go out and they get management consulting positions or other positions like that, and yet they actually don't learn. Like in the marketplace, when when they're asked, how could you improve your performance, they get super defensive. And he, he did study to find out why that is, and I was fascinated to read this. Get this, quote, there seems to be a universal human tendency to remain in unilateral control, to maximize winning and minimize losing to suppress negative feelings and to avoid embarrassment or threat feeling vulnerable or incompetent. Well, friends, it turns out that the very same reasons why our smartest business school graduates can't learn is the very same reason why religious insiders can't worship. Because worship, you're going to be vulnerable. Worship, you're going to sometimes feel incompetent. Worship, you're going to have to give it up. You're going to have to get off your throne and give up your control and lay down with your face in the dirt and give everything you've got to the Lord. You talk about winning and losing. You're losing. And the God of all creation is winning. And that's when real worship starts now what so what what is the application for us this morning well the first I I just want to offer a, a group application to us as a church and say it is an affirmation it, it, worship we are a worship church people here will not tolerate pretend substitute false fake worship they want to go all in and that's been true for, for us for such a long time. It's just embedded in our DNA, and, and it's reflected in, in our staffing values and our time and our, our money. You talk about time, I and mean, we're starting today, 100 days of prayer. We're, we're, we're giving up an hour, some of you in the middle of the night, to come in and worship the Lord and to hear his voice. And, and money, next week, we'll will get the joy of hearing how the the reach initiative came out and i don't know what the final number is going to turn out to be but i do know this it represents sacrifice and then control i mean th- this last year we've all had to give up some control haven't we we moved to a new building where we'd never been before and maybe now there's new people in your row and you don't know them and that feels a little awkward you maybe feel a little out of control and then our church was was tapped to be a bishop's church. And all of a sudden to have a role to serve and sacrifice on behalf of 25 or 30 other Anglican churches here in the upper Midwest. And I have to say, as one of your pastors, I am really blessed by the way you all have handled that. You have not freaked out about that. You have, because of your worship for the Lord, you've said, you know what, he's in control. And I'm okay with that. So there's a big word of affirmation for all of us as a people that this value matters to the Lord and it matters to us. But there is embedded in this Bible passage a warning that we dare not miss. There is for every one of us in our hearts this little Herod in the heart. This part of us that says, Lord, I've already given you 98%. Do I really, really have to give up that final 2% that I'm holding on to so tightly in control? Do I really have to let that go? There's a part of us that does not want to give that up. I don't know what that is for you, friends. Maybe it's something around your children. Maybe it's something that you just want to control around your job. Maybe it's some measure of control around your career or your health or or a special relationship in your life or your skills or your looks or how you're perceived. I don't know what it is, but I know that real worship begins when you give up even that final 2% and say, Jesus, I worship you even though I don't even have control over this. Years ago, I had the chance to meet a, a Presbyterian missionary to Lebanon. And some of you may have heard of him because he made the international news when in May of 1984 he was walking down the street of Beirut and a car pulled up, some guys jumped out, grabbed him, threw him in the back seat of the car, put a hood over his head and drove him to some hidden location. And there they stripped him of his clothes and they put on new clothes and they held him hostage in order to raise money for the Islamic Jihad. His name was Benjamin Weir. And I had a chance to talk to him, and he told me about that experience, and he said, you know what? When they, when they stripped off my clothes, a, a, a tiny black button fell off my shirt and fell to the ground. And when they weren't looking, I slipped down and picked it up And he said, I would hold that in the palm of my hand so tightly that it would imprint itself on the palm of my hand because that was the only control I had. My life had been stripped away from me. My identity had been taken. But I was going to hold on to this black button. What is that black button in your soul right now? You worship the Lord 98%, but there's that 2%, and you haven't given it in lavish worship and devotion because you're afraid you can't yield the control right there. But, oh, friends, if you will do that, if you will take that little thing and lay it down at the feet of Jesus Christ, here's what it will become for you. It will become gold weighty in meaning and inexpressibly valuable to God. It will become frankincense, this fragrant offering that rises to his throne and pleases him. It will become myrrh, the burial ointment for the dead because something in you had to die to give it. Come near to Jesus this morning. See him. See him. See that he's worth it that he's worth it, and then then just come before him, fall on your face, and say with all your heart, I surrender all. Amen.